Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Episode 20, The Seduction of Neuroscience and Other Stories with Dr. Louise Allen Walker. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Emma and Tom Talk Teaching. And this time we have a long-standing guest of the podcast. So long-standing that we're going to have to get her a new mic. <laughs> Welcome back, back, Dr. Louise Allen Walker. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you both? We are well. All the better <laughs> to have you here. I think we ought to remind our listeners. I think I think it's maybe the last two seasons, Tom, that we've had Louise. Has it been like one a year for I the think, last two years? Yeah, I think we're averaging one a year. Nice. We, we could increase that if you want. <laughs> we are an annual guest now. But for those of you, for those of you listeners out there who don't know Louise, do you want to just tell our listeners who you are, what you do here at Cardiff Met? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm Dr. Louise Allen Walker. I'm a psychologist. Uh, did my my undergrad in psychology at Swansea, my master's in psychological research at Bangor and my PhD at Bangor as well, um, looking at the role of the cerebellum in language prediction. I'm here at Cardiff Met uh, as the programme director of the MSc Psychology and Education, which is a BPS accredited British Psychological Society accredited master's programme, which looks at the application of psychology to education Um, and so I focus on that program mainly on um, applying neuroscience and cognitive psychology to education Uh, and I also teach um, a lot of research methods as well so that's me. And long-term listeners will remember that you are famed for your Neuromyth van and your how many <laughs> Neuromyths can I bust in? Was it three minutes, I think? I can't remember. Yeah, they were. High points for us. We've not quite got you a gimmick for this one yet, although there, there are some ideas floating around. But yeah. why, nominally, why are you here today? <laughs> Uh, So I'm here today to talk about a book that I absolutely love. I recommend it on my programme often and recommend it to anyone interested in applying psychology to education. It's called um, 99 Studies That Every Teacher Should Know uh, by uh, Bush and Watson. They've just um, not long released their second edition. And uh, today I just wanted to pull out some key studies that I thought were particularly interesting that your listeners might find particularly useful. Right, so let's just go in hard and heavy to begin with, with study number 89. Now, this is probably the one that many teachers out there will know a lot about and will have been talking about lots recently. It's the one about cognitive load. For anyone who is unfamiliar with cognitive load, although I I find that very difficult to believe at this stage, it seems to be everywhere... What do teachers need to know about this, Louise? A cognitive load, essentially, um, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, is is this idea that we have limited resources to pay attention and to kind of process and memorise information that, that's kind of coming into our um into our minds, into our brains. And so it's really important for us as educators to think carefully about how we're providing information, um, how it's presented, the kind of pace of that information to avoid cognitive overload, essentially because what we're looking for is really effective transition of information from working memory into long-term memory. That's kind of our goal as educators. So anything that we can do to reduce that load and facilitate that transition to long-term memory is going to be really, really useful. And one of the big things that we can do is think about how attention is going to be utilised 
within um, the kind of teaching material that we're presenting or the activities that we're doing. Um, and this study is, is kind of a, a classic one. So this is Chandler and Sweller, 1992, British Journal of Education Psychology. I don't think I have the title, but I think that gives us enough to go off for for searching for this study. Um, What I liked about this one was that when you think about education psychology, maybe, well, I certainly think about really complicated scientific uh, experiments taking place, but Maybe they oversimplify it in the book, but this was quite a simple way of testing cognitive load. Maybe it'd be good to sort of tell the listeners the test that they did. And it might give some ideas about how this might happen inadvertently in the classroom. Yeah, some of the like best cognitive experiments are just those nice, simple paradigms where they just like have one nice little manipulation where they've changed one thing in one group or one condition and not the other. And it just makes that effect really clear. And like you said, this is a really nice one for that. So essentially, they um, looked at this thing called the split attention effect, where they have two types of images, kind of typical, what they call conventional diagrams, where you have the image itself, and then a legend at one side with labels that kind of link to different components of that diagram. And then they had what they called integrated diagrams, where the labels were placed onto the individual components directly rather than being to one side. So they just kind of tested kind of retention of that information in those two conditions. Uh, And what they found was that when students um, were looking at the integrated images, they processed them much faster than the students looking at the conventional um, images. And they also had... Uh, much better marks on assessments afterwards, about 22% better for the integrated images as compared to the the learners that were given the conventional images. And obviously, as you said, Emma, this was published in 1992, and this was kind of one of those seminal papers that really started to think about how understanding cognitive load can be applied in um, education. And it kind of spawned a lot of uh, research, which I'm sure many of your listeners will have come across, around how we can most effectively kind of utilise the limited capacity that humans have to process information to, uh, to learn as effectively as possible. So I suppose to pull this round now to the kind of everyday fun and massively obnoxious debates that that rage particularly on Twitter and other educational bits of social media. The cognitive load one, I suspect you've probably picked this one because this is one that gets bandied about by the, uh, the education community, whether they, they're kind of from your area or, or probably more, more likely not from your area. And we could really, really sort of, um, in a sort of insultingly caricatured way, suggest that we've got two sides of this debate really here. We've got people who feel you need to rehabilitate direct teaching because it's been made really unfashionable by progressive people and all this. And then on the other side, you've got people that sort of see this group as being kind of slightly obsessed with making everybody sit back in rows and go back to the olden days and this kind of thing, which, you know, is a fairly obnoxious characterisation of both sides. Does this cognitive load stuff actually help us decide whether we should be direct teaching because, you know, if they try and find it out by themselves, their cognitive load is going to get overloaded and it's going to be a disaster? Or is it more nuanced than that? Or or what kind of pointers can we draw from this as teachers? Okay, so I think the first thing to say is that cognitive load 
although it's a well-researched area and, and it has loads of good things to tell us about education and how we can do it well, there are some criticisms. Uh, I like to say, like, you put one psychologist in a room and you have two opinions. And, mm-hmm. and I feel like this is one of those areas. I I really like talking about cognitive load because I think it gives us lots of useful tools. But there are um, some people who criticise it because it's difficult to measure an individual person's kind of how much cognitive load an individual person has and kind of measure directly how you're impacting that person's cognitive load. So a lot of the things that we measure are kind of proxies. So you're kind of saying, well, because their memory was better, it must be that their cognitive load was not um, overloaded. And this book actually does address some of that, the nuance of that kind of debate there. The other thing I would say is that the as you said, Tom, it is much more nuanced. I, I don't think that this, because cognitive load helps us to understand how to provide information in a way that's helpful, that's not saying that we should be doing everything in a didactic way, not at all. It's just helping us to know that when we do have to do things in a didactic way, how to best help with that. And of course, because of the way that cognitive experiments often work, a lot of the information that is provided to learners often has to be didactic so that it's well controlled. A lot of the the kind of early cognitive research that's applied to education, um, you know, this is an issue that we talk about a lot in on um, our programme. It's kind of translated from lab based research, you know, early kind of memory researches people sitting looking at computer screens viewing single words or single images and then having to remember those and one of the jobs for people who are interested in psychology and how it relates to education is extrapolating those findings to more complicated situations like classrooms which are really difficult to control and obviously the types of information that's being learned is very different so a lot of the early research Um, This isn't one of them, obviously, they look directly at learners, but lots of kind of early cognitive research that's used more to apply to education is coming from that kind of experimental direction where it really has to be didactic to make sure that the experiment is controlled for effectively. So that kind of puts a lot of constraints on how studies are designed to make sure that, that you are controlling for those different conditions in a way that means you can make a a kind of valuable comparison and the more kind of complex the task like kind of engaging actively in an activity the more potential kind of confounding variables you bring in and the more difficult it is to know that the impact of your manipulation is because of what you're doing and not because of some individual difference in the child or the group that they end up working in or something like that so I I think there's a, a lot of kind of complex things going on there and and yeah you know in terms of cognitive load I I think it does have a lot to tell us but that the thing that is telling us is not just speak didactically to children and hope that they retain all that information you know there's a lot of research around cognitive engagement with material and how valuable that is and and that doesn't happen as effectively when they're just passive recipients of information. So whilst being aware of all of those really important caveats, I suppose there are some things that are going to be takeaways for teachers. So what can classroom teachers take from this, Louise? Yeah, so there's some nice, um, this was just one study from the book, but there's lots of other findings that they do talk about in this book as well, which I I brought along. So one of the, the kind of big things is not giving irrelevant information while learners are trying to learn something that they need. You know, try not to kind of overload them with 
uh, maybe like additional instructions for the next stage of the activity that they don't need yet um, or kind of giving lots of superfluous information that's maybe not that desirable for them to understand for their their exams or, or assessments. A really big one for learners while they're revising is not listening to music with lyrics because those lyrics can interfere with their processing of the information that they're reading um, and that obviously will increase their cognitive load. Uh, one of the things was like excessive classroom decorations. Obviously, I'm not saying have plain classrooms, but um, decorations that might be distracting or particularly maybe if they're like moving or if they're very colourful and in, in the eye line that that might pull attention away from the task at hand because, you know, maybe looking at the nice display is more interesting than maybe reading a quite dry book, for example. And limiting uh, PowerPoint animations as well. One of the things that... that Um, we talk about a lot with cognitive load is that on PowerPoints, the kind of temptation is to make them look really fun and engaging and put loads of animations or maybe extra images. You haven't seen my PowerPoints. (laughs) This is Tom's biggest bugbear, Louise. You've you've touched a nerve here. There's no cognitive load uh, extra stuff going on there. Tell you what. (laughs) Um, Yeah, sometimes, you know, a little um, image can lift a mood and has kind of positive emotional impacts, but you can't overload learners with that kind of um, additional stuff because those images draw attention from the the kind of key information that you're trying to convey. What you want to focus on is diagrams that help the learner to kind of understand the written information. That's kind of the focus. And it strikes me that if you've also got a resource that is quite busy, I'm thinking if you're working with an infographic, if you're working with some challenging text from a textbook, then there are teaching implications for the the way you then teach that particular resource to sort of scaffold and support that cognitive load as you go. If you sort of get them to try and read it and take it all in, then that's potentially going to be cognitively overloading. So there is sort of implications pedagogically, depending on what you're working with. And the other people I thought this might be really important to the pupils themselves at a certain age to know about cognitive overload and working memory particularly in preparation for when they're revising so they can start to spot when they're feeling that way what they can do themselves to try and reduce that load yeah absolutely and it's about thinking carefully I suppose about where their attention is and, and what they're kind of paying maybe too much attention to evaluating for themselves what information is really relevant you know certainly I remember being a teenager and I was one of those like color-coded highlight people which is really not a valuable way of revising unfortunately but I loved it all the same and I'm sure there's lots of learners out there who love highlighting but actually you're kind of then putting too much attention maybe on classifying the information rather than processing the information more deeply and that brings us to a kind of quite different um, study by um, Dunlosky which kind of covers different revision techniques and essentially the best way of revising is through retrieval practice kind of testing yourself multiple choice quizzes practice essays that sort of thing to kind of reinforce the connections between the kind of areas that you're trying to learn and kind of reinforce the pathways to retrieve that information so that when you're 
under the kind of stressful exam situation, you can just pull that information out much more easily than you would if you had just relied on revising or uh, highlighting, sorry, or rereading. I think you just busted another neuromyth, Have didn't I? you? <laughs> well done. <laughs> well done. So we should keep moving. So we've yes, got three more to get through. Tom, have. what have we got next? We're going to look at two slightly linked ones here and, and certainly things that get thrown at people as quick fixes for their lives. So let's start with number 39, which is resilience. How does one go about uh, developing resilience in our pupils? We've heard about, you know, the, the tough times that they've gone through, particularly with things like COVID and oh, all sorts of things, screen time and social media. What does the neuroscience say? There's a trigger phrase for you <laughs> about <laughs> developing resilience in our pupils. Fletcher and Sarko, uh, 2016 was the kind of key study that, uh, that Bush and Watson pulled out for this book. And essentially, they looked at different resilience programs. These guys are sports psychologists and they've worked with like Olympians. And, and so resilience is so important for people who do uh, sport as their career. You know, it's it's a lot of kind of physical and mental um, effort. So resilience is obviously um, super important in that field. So they reviewed a lot of literature and, and came up with kind of three components around how you should format resilience programs to help to help improve resilience. The first one was around personal qualities. So things like having intrinsic motivation, which we know is super important for learning, more important than extrinsic motivators. Things like self-talk and kind of being kind to yourself, encouraging yourself, believing in yourself. You know, these are tough things to do sometimes and, and it's important for learners, well, for all of us really to kind of practice that kind of kind self-talk. Things like optimism, another really big one, having, you know, again, it's, it can be tough sometimes and I'm sure for some of us it's been tough over the last few years, but trying to be optimistic, thinking about what good things we have going on and what good things we've got to look forward to. And a, a really big one is, is focusing on what's important and focusing on what we can control as well. One of the kind of really big triggers for feeling very stressed is when we feel out of control and that's normal you know often we're out of control of of things going on in our lives so focus on what what you can control sometimes that's just how you respond to it sometimes there's something you can do to try and resolve the issue and kind of sitting down and thinking through what you can control in that situation is really valuable the second prong of their um, idea for resilience programs is a facilitative environment. They kind of have this nice diagram where they consider challenge and support to be the kind of two components to building a, a um, an environment where resilience will flourish. So in terms of support, if you don't have any support and you don't have any challenge, then you're quite stagnant. What you're doing is easy. You don't need the support. You're not developing you're just stagnant. When you have no challenge and lots of support, then you're comfortable. Things are nice and easy. You've got all the support you need, but you're not being challenged or pushed to kind of develop or improve your skills. When you have lots of challenge, but no support, then it feels unrelenting. It's, it's you know, it's full on, it's too much, and, and you're going to struggle to get through the, the things you need to get through, learn the things that you need to learn or progress in the way that you need to. Where resilience happens is in a facilitative environment where you have 
challenge and support. So it's important to have both. You can't give people lots of challenge and then expect them to suddenly be independent learners by removing all of that support. You have to have the support available. They have to know that there's somewhere they can go even when they're you know, you want them to be independent, but you want them to be challenged, but know where to, to find that support when they need it. And sometimes that's you as, as the educator, sometimes that's resources. They just need to know where they can go to get the support. So it's in that facilitative environment that, that resilience happens. And then the third aspect of, of resilience programs, according to Fletcher and Sarka, is a challenge mindset. So this is kind of reframing how you think of things that happen in your life um, or particularly in educational environments um, for us and kind of framing them in a way that is helpful and, and useful to you. So, you know, you're in a learning environment, you're finding things difficult. You want to think about maybe what you're going to gain from the thing that you're going through. You know, exams, for example, are tough. No one enjoys exams. So thinking what you're going to gain from that and kind of what the the outcome is going to be after you've overcome that kind of stressful situation. Again, thinking and asking yourself, what, what can I do about this? How can I help myself in this stressful situation? Not catastrophizing, that's a really big one. Some um, people, and and certainly I think we're all guilty of it at one time or another, just think the worst, you know, if I don't pass this exam, then everything's, Life is over. Yeah, everything's <laughs> gonna go wrong. And yeah, yeah. So try try to kind of just think about actually reasonably what are the outcomes of this and how can you kind of address that that situation in a productive way try to avoid words like should and must things like you know i absolutely must get an a that's kind of problematic because actually you could get a b and your life will continue it'll be fine (laughs) um and trying to kind of really concentrate on things that are positive and helpful to you you know again it sounds really easy to say it and it's but it's a hard thing to do but um you know as educators we can help our learners to kind of reframe and reconsider those kind of um potentially quite stressful situations as things that actually might have a a nice outcome and you know might kind of help us to develop and be better learners in the future and i suppose if i'm going to let my cynicism absolutely rip at this point i think resilience can be a very attractive proposition to leaders whether that's school leaders or, or educational leaders looking at their staff or whether it's staff looking at their pupils because perhaps they see it as perhaps a synonym of compliance or perhaps they see it as, oh, well, if I can get everybody to be really resilient and you know look after themselves and sort these problems out, then I'm going to have a much easier time of it because they're going to go forth and, and do stuff. Can it potentially kind of sour into a thing where it's seen as, you know, just go away and do as you're told? Yeah, I mean, there's a few things to pull out there. I think, I think, firstly, if if you're uh, like a leader of children or a leader of people, you need to make sure that you're supporting the people you want to be resilient. You know, that's kind of one of the key components within the facilitative environment is support. So you can't expect, you know, resilience doesn't necessarily equal independence, and so that support is so important. One of the things that the book talks about, there's a section around independent learners and kind of how to help your learners to become more independent. And one of the things that it says is, you know, withdrawing support too quickly is not 
going to work. You need to make sure that support is there, that you're scaffolding them and that you're still available, even if um, you know your expectation is that they're going to be independent, things aren't always going to run smoothly and you need to still be available to them to come back to you when the other avenues that they've tried haven't worked. The other thing that I would pull out there is some of the ris- the risks around training resilience. And I think one of the big risks is that, uh, and this is something that, that Fletcher and Saka address in the paper and one of the things that the book addresses as well, is that there are risks around resilience becoming a way of being perceived as blame towards the individual. What you don't want is people feeling like, well, the reason I'm stressed isn't because I'm in a stressful situation, it's because I'm not resilient enough. And that that then creates an environment where resilience is not going to happen because that person is feeling really low on themselves. They're not feeling like they can talk about what's going on with them. And and that's really the, the, the important thing is that you have this kind of open and honest discussion where people can talk about the fact that it's normal to feel stressed. Um, you know, we all experience stressful periods. You know, we all experience really... Um, kind of full-on times where there's lots of revision or workload you know for staff certainly marking season is really really full-on we're in that right now which is why it's come to my mind and so kind of what needs to be present for resilience training to work is an environment where people can honestly talk about what's stressing them out why they feel stressed and have that kind of um, space to talk about maybe what they can do about it and how they can approach a problem in a different way. And and so that's kind of the role of leaders is to support their staff to kind of find a, a way out of maybe feeling quite stressed in a, a kind of space where they can admit to feeling stressed and have that kind of ease without the blame. You know, there shouldn't be any blame for feeling stressed because it's, it's a normal human response to um, to. <laughs> Stressful situations, I can't think of another word, but you know what I mean. (laughs) Yeah, what I like about it is that this framework can be sort of applied more generally in terms of sort of classroom culture and can be applied sort of generally to anything you're teaching and to any teacher. It kind of seems to go hand in hand with some of the work around and the research around metacognition, so encouraging young people to sort of think about their own thinking and apply steps to help them address and to be reflecting constantly. I, I quite like that. But the other thing that struck me about something that you said was this idea about intrinsic motivation as well, is that a teacher can do all of these things, but I think a teacher also sometimes has to make their peace with the fact that you like with the cognitive load discussion we were having you can't be in somebody else's mind and you there are certain things that you cannot control so you can sort of do all of these things but that intrinsic motivation is 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 different from person to person I'm presuming absolutely yeah and I think you know we we can try and encourage intrinsic motivation we can try and make things interesting the way that we perceive those things to be interesting but some learners will just never gel with that material and you know I'm sure for us having been learners ourselves you can think of times that no matter how wonderful the teacher was you you just couldn't find a way into enjoying that subject and I you know I think that's okay we we just have to do our best and kind of keep doing a good job as much as we possibly can and there are other things that help learning you know extrinsic motivation is not the best kind of motivation, but it can help. Things like um, 
trusting and enjoying being in a classroom is enough sometimes to kind of help a learner engage with that material. The attitudes of people around you can help as well. So if you're, you know, maybe as a learner or as a teacher looking at learners, you know you've got a learner who's maybe not very intrinsically motivated. Grouping them with people who are intrinsically motivated might help because you know, I'm sure I'm sure you guys have witnessed this kind of anecdotally, but there is research to support the idea that the effort kind of spreads. So if you've got a group of people who are really keen beans and there's someone in the minority who's maybe enjoying it a bit less, grouping them with the keen beans will kind of help pull them up. Um so there are there are things that we can do, but but you're absolutely right. We can't go in and magically make someone intrinsically motivated to learn a topic that that they really don't like we just have to kind of do all the outside bits around and yes hope for the best yeah and I suppose that's what's nice to just conclude about this study is that I I like it when we take a sometimes fluffy term that gets bandied about too too often and then tangible things that we can control we can do to try and address that issue okay so we're moving on <laughs> i still yeah. don't know the order you're looking at me here. oh i thought you were looking at me because this is the interacting with the nature one now the reason i thought emma was looking at me is that uh, outdoor learning is quite a quite a hot topic out there particularly in primary so we get a lot of assignments in about outdoor learning you know not all of which kind of see people engage in their critical faculties perhaps as much as I would like as the person marking it but actually this study is not so much about kind of outdoor learning in forest school as taking a break yeah absolutely so this is a nice study by Berman and colleagues from 2008 and essentially they did two experiments um, one that looked at actually being outdoors and one that looked at nature visualization and I'll come on to that one in a moment but essentially it was about taking a break and going outside and the difference between going outside in um, a park where you've got lots of nature around you and um, going outside into an urban space where obviously there's not nature around you. And they wanted to see whether this would impact things like attention and and memory. Um, So what they had learners do was just go out for 50 minutes on a, a walk, either in a park or in an urban space, as I said. And what they found was that the learners that went for a walk in nature had much better um, performance on attention and memory. They, they kind of had a, about 16% improvement on those things, where the people who went for a walk in an urban space didn't have any improvement. So um, kind of going back to that idea of like controlling experiments well, this shows us that it's not the impact of a walk alone it's the impact of walking in nature, um, which is kind of nice. You know, as I said, that kind of nice contrast shows really clearly what, what the impact is and where the impact's coming from. A really nice thing that they found was that um, walking in the park helped all year round. So whether, regardless of the season, regardless of the weather, just having a walk outside in nature was really useful. So you're not allowed to use rain as an excuse <laughs> to not go for a walk. And as you might expect as well, the the nature walks also had a, the people who went on nature walks also had a mood boost compared to the ones that didn't um, go in nature, they walked in urban spaces. So in general, what this kind of tells us is that taking a break and taking a break specifically in nature is helpful. And one of the reasons for this um, 
or one of the reasons that's hypothesized because there's a few different um, theories and debates around the mechanism through which nature helps people mm-hmm. but one of the theories is around the attention is kind of restored by being out in nature that that obviously being kind of indoors learning it's quite intense so going out into nature can help restore you in a way that going out into other types of spaces doesn't and it can help you then kind of come back and re-engage more in fact effectively with the material now the second experiment and and what i really liked about this study is that they then did a kind of similar thing with pictures of nature And they um, similarly found that there was better performance on memory and attention tests after looking at pictures of nature. Executive function um, also had increases and the learners felt more refreshed after looking at the images. So um, the reason I really like this study is because for those of you who are teachers and maybe don't have access to a, a nice green space kind of attached to um, the school that you are working in or maybe it's impractical given maybe the learners you have or the weather outside or whatever it is even just kind of sitting and and looking at pictures of nature can be really helpful and so a nice way to maybe take a break is to put up some images on the board maybe play some nature sounds and just kind of relax and take a break from the material before going back to it so yeah, this is uh, this I thought was a really nice paper for you guys. Yeah, and again, it sort of joins up, I think, with some of that cognitive load stuff because the urban environment I think they found was not as soothing because your attention is directed to things like not being hit by a car and having to sort of navigate around people on, on a busy high street, and and so you know by contrast, you can think more freely. You can sort of be be soothed by nature in a way that urban environments um, don't achieve but I I agree with you it's really nice that if you're you know it's not practical to always be no (laughs) right kids out we go you know it would be lovely Um, however you can achieve similar results by by using images which is quite good to know it's I've got to say nature saved my life For the last couple of weeks when I was trying to do my ed D literature review oh, you, it yeah. really did take me somewhere else and actually helped to sort of dis- dislodge some of the aspects of my thinking that I'd gotten sort of stuck in and then I yeah. could come back afresh and, yeah. and see things through fresh eyes so. and there's actually some really interesting research around how being out in nature helps to improve creativity as well which is cool so uh, that yeah that might might be why <laughs> uh, c- continue to do it then come rain or shine and I suppose if you can't get out into nature I'm sort of thinking like you were saying that not every school is going to be able to do that it makes me think of when I was back in school and there was almost a kind of sense that you had to fill every single second of the kids lives with some stuff you know I remember when I was a form teacher and we had form time in the middle of the morning and there was always a bit of a push from some quarters to kind of do specific things, you know, quite structured things in there. And I always used to find myself faintly rebelling against it, really, and saying, oh, can we not just let the kids chill out for a bit? And this was, you know, a bit heretical at the time. But my instinct was they just needed to not be bombarded with structured stuff just for 20 minutes. Yeah, absolutely. And this this shows that really nicely, that they had this kind of increase in performance just after taking... Yeah, 50 minutes, uh, you know, for lots of schools, that's kind of um, a lesson length, isn't it? So, you know, just take that time, go out, have a walk around and and come back. And it really, you know, it really does help with their their learning. You know, the constant uh, going back to that kind of cognitive load, you know, if if you're 
still thinking a bit about your last lesson, having gone into your next lesson, how can you focus on what you're doing? But having that kind of nice cushion between things can help just to kind of process the information they've just learned, maybe link together some of their learning in a way that they hadn't when they were in it, and then go to the next lesson and kind of start afresh. Thank you very much. So we're going to move away from leafy refreshment now and end on a slightly more cautionary tale from a from a study about the seduction of neuroscience. So <laughs> buckle up, Louise. <laughs> what do we need to be careful of when we're looking at these sorts of studies? So, so essentially, um, there's this nice paper by Weisberg and colleagues from from 2008 that really just showed that when neuroscience imagery and neuroscience information is attached to psychology kind of explanations, even when those explanations are really poor, people who aren't experts in neuroscience are more likely to believe those facts. And this is quite a growing issue because, you know, people like brain images I I think I said in the last one and I remember being embarrassed using the word because it's like public but people do feel like that brain images are quite sexy and they want to put them in everything (laughs) put you know put a little brain in and put some glowy dots on (laughs) the reason why we're laughing Louise is not laughing at you we might have said it in that previous episode but there is (laughs) it's going to go down in history a presentation that Tom and I did presenting our literature review that was completely unrelated really to what's going on in the brain but I had loads of pictures of splatty bra- well Tom yeah, the splatty referred to brains. splatty yeah. brains yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that this was one of those choices that the PowerPoint made but maybe I'm being kind I think it was pre-design ideas I think it was it <laughs> was it Tom was a, it was a Thayer idea it was a Thayer idea to put a splatty brain so this oh, is a yeah. neuro consider this neuromyth busted in my head <laughs> no more splatty brains no more splatty brains um <laughs> Oh no, that's brilliant. I mean, probably given they this, particularly sexy, mind. Do they? No, but it obviously made us look incredibly knowledgeable about what we were presenting about. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Um, so yeah, they, they did another like neat experiment where they had kind of topics about related to psychology that they presented to participants, and some of them were true and some of them were false. And some of them had kind of supplementary neuroscientific information and some of them didn't. And essentially what they wanted was participants to rate how satisfying they found the explanations. And and what they found was that essentially if there was more neuro, they found it more satisfying. So what that meant is that even when the neuroscience information was made up or false in some way, they still thought that the information was good information. And this effect they called the seduction of neuroscience and kind of, um, you know, it makes it difficult for us to potentially, or you know, people who aren't experts in neuroscience to look critically at what's presented. There's a lot of information out there, bloggers who kind of get the wrong end of the stick reading neuroscientific papers or just Chinese whispers, you know someone somewhere read the paper reported it and then it gets kind of watered down and tweaked as people kind of read different versions of the original and kind of one of the really big issues was that they found that the effect was more pronounced when the explanation the original explanation for the psychology information was quite weak so what that kind of means for us is that when 
people who don't know about neuroscience read information with a little bit of neuroscience tacked on, they're more likely to believe incorrect information, which, you know, is worrisome because of how much information is out there, a kind of saying that it's for teachers when it's been written by someone who maybe isn't an expert in psychology, maybe isn't an expert in education, but they've kind of pulled this information from somewhere and, you know, reported it through maybe a slightly different lens than the way that it should have been reported. And this impacts novices, but also people who know a little bit about neuroscience. So even learning a bit, a little bit, but not being an expert is still enough for you to kind of fall into this trap, which, you know, makes it quite hard, I think, for people to trust what they're reading, um, particularly if it's not from a, an immediately obviously trustworthy source. I wonder, does it fall into, and this is just me speculating now some kind of confirmation bias that you like if you've got a little bit and you've already sort of sold on an idea that the more you read that you know it's confirming what you what you feel and what you think you know to be true yeah I'm I'm sure it does link to that you know people who are really excited about neuroscience will I'm sure think oh there's neuroscience here that's wonderful and and be more likely to believe it there's also kind of linking to that this really interesting effect called the Dunning-Kruger effect which some of your listeners might be aware of where confidence in how much you know about a topic starts really high when you've learned a little bit And then as you learn more and realise how much you don't know, your confidence massively decreases. And then when you become an an absolute expert in that topic, your confidence increases again. So it means that for people who know a little bit, sometimes they can be overconfident in their judgments of that information when actually they don't know as much as they think they know, which can mean that we fall into traps um, yeah, I've again. heard that applied to things like peer and self-assessment, like mm. why you shouldn't be do that too hastily. You need to be sure that your pupils sort of understand the material before they can critique themselves and yeah. others because they might, you know, fall foul of some of the things that you just raised. Yeah, that's really, and it's got loads of applications. Mm. That Explains why you were all those nature walks, doing your Ed Lit review. You're in the low point of your Dunning-Kruger effect. You start <laughs> to realise how much you don't know. But when you finish, you won't need those nature walks anymore because <laughs> you'll be confident <laughs> oh dear okay well with uh, time slightly against us i mean we've only covered four of those studies but as as the title would suggest there are 99 of them uh, two pages per study so an, a nice easy read i suppose we would say go and have a look at the studies wouldn't we as well once you've read the two pages yeah absolutely um i've found the studies Uh, the original studies for these four papers, um, the PDFs, so that if you're interested, you you can go and have a look and read for yourself a little bit more around um, what these people found. Yeah, good practice. We'll stick links to them. And if you you can get at them, then brilliant. Um, The book is The Science of Learning 99 Studies That Every Teacher Needs to Know by Edward Watson and Bradley Bush, B-U-S-C-H, published by Taylor and Francis in 2021. We're going to move on to the short slots now. So we're going to have something interesting and something to try. And you can pick which one you would like to do first. Okay, so yeah, so you asked me to choose something interesting and I, and I um, kind of reflected back on a, a module that I've really enjoyed delivering this year on our undergraduate education, psychology and special educational needs programme. Um, and the module is Emerging Themes in Psychology and Education, where our students kind of chose the topics that they wanted to talk about in class. 
that were kind of coming through the field. And one of the things that we talked about that I think um, the students really responded to was the issue of of bias. As humans, we look for shortcuts to process information, and this can lead to unconscious bias. So our previous experiences or the kind of culture that we've grown up in, the attitudes that our kind of parents have um, raised us in potentially, all of these things can mean that we have unconscious biases towards or against certain people. Just to kind of give you an example of how quickly we can make these judgments, there's a, a study by um, Todorov and colleagues from 2009 where they looked at first impressions of things like, um, for example, trustworthiness and found that after 50 milliseconds, people will make a judgment about whether or not they think someone is trustworthy, for example. And there's loads of research, um, it's called the halo effect, around people who are more attractive being viewed as having better attributes, things like being smarter, maybe more honest, maybe more socially aware, healthier, well-adjusted, academically successful. And we make these kind of snap judgments about people. And kind of leading off that was a really interesting study um, that was published in 2020 by Halberstadt uh, and colleagues. And they looked at teachers in training and the teachers that they looked at, they were 70% of them were people who were white and uh, 89%, sorry, were people who were female. And what they asked them to do was judge emotional expressions of um, children from photos. And what they found was that these teachers, uh, trainee teachers, I should say, judged male images to be more aggressive than female images. And they also judged images of um, children who are black as being more aggressive than images of children who were white. And that just kind of shows, you know, some of those unconscious biases are still kind of alive and well and and they're really difficult to overcome so one of the areas that I kind of wanted to bring up was an emerging area in the field around interventions that help us to reduce bias and reduce stereotypes there's a nice study by Fitzgerald and colleagues from 2019 where they reviewed loads of different studies that looked at interventions to try and help um, reduce bias uh, and reduce these stereotypes. And one of the main things that they found was that there just isn't enough research to kind of pull out conclusions about what what works really well. They only found about 30 studies that kind of met their criteria for what they considered to be kind of a solid piece of research that they could draw conclusions from. Um, Some of the areas that they pulled out as things that might be useful to examine in more depth were around intentional strategies to overcome biases. So essentially kind of teaching people specific strategies that they can use to try and counteract their own bias. Things like um, exposure to counter stereotypical exemplars. So if you're using case studies in your classroom or if you're using kind of um, creating maybe mock exam questions, you know, I always think of like when I did my maths exam papers, it was always, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I was going to say Tom and Emma because the names are right in front of me. (laughs) Tom and Emma have 12 marbles. But, you know, if if there's ways that you can build case studies or examples that are in some way 
counter stereotypical then that might be helpful one of the other um, avenues was identifying yourself with the out group so anything that you can do to kind of take the individual and give them tasks um, that will help to kind of lessen any barriers between them and and the group that is being kind of biased against you know be that women or um, people with different gender identities be that people with different um, ethnic identities so this is kind of an emerging field and I thought it's kind of an interesting topic that that is I know my current students find found really interesting to discuss and kind of reflect on what the schools that they're currently working in are doing to to try and counteract bias and to um, support kind of inclusive classroom environments. So that's that something interesting and something to try. Uh, I suppose I have something to try <laughs> yeah, as well. Something to try as well. Oh, we're on a bonanza here. Go on then. What have we got to try? Well, I mean, my something to try was essentially going going outside, kind of leading oh, yes. off our nature. Into nature. Yeah. <laughs> You know, obviously, a lot of what we talk about have talked about in these um, podcasts is around what we can do for our learners. But I think also for ourselves, I think it's good to kind of go outside and just take some time to yourself and refresh and, um, yeah, you know, go for a little walk or have a walking meeting even. Um, Yeah, uh, that's my something to try. Yeah. Go outdoors. Neuroscience says it's a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) So there we are, another wonderful episode with Dr. Louise Allen Walker. Thank you so much for your time. We'll be back in your ears in two weeks. Do we want to do Challenge Louise? <laughs> do we want to do my gimmick that I've just found? Have you found oh, no. it? <laughs> You're so good. So we have to have a gimmick for Louise. So it's probably the point now that I should confess that while you were explaining the cognitive load uh, study earlier on, I was on Twitter search, searching for tweets containing the words neuroscience says. (laughs) (laughs) And I would like to read you some of these tweets and I would like you in a maximum of three sentences to tell me. Where where these people are on the Dunning-Kruger effect. Oh my gosh. <laughs> are you ready Pressure's for this on. challenge? It's all right, you're in a supportive environment. Supportive environment. High challenge, lots of support. Lots of support. We're both here with you. Okay, here we go. At iconic underscore quote, neuroscience says there's a part on the left side of your brain that lights up as soon as you think of achieving a goal. This part of the brain energises you and keeps you focused on achieving your goals. Wow. Um... Well, so the brain doesn't work in these little boxes, essentially, is what I would say. The brain is a network and everything that we do that's complicated, like goal setting and maintaining kind of behaviours that help us reach that goal, require a lot of different kind of networked brain areas to be engaged. So uh, anything that says this brain area does this and lights up and, and does everything to do with this process is an oversimplification of the way that the brain works very polite i'm wishing i'd given you sound effect buttons <laughs> yeah. okay uh at mirror perspective neuroscience says building or breaking new habits is extremely difficult after the age of 35 um yes and no i suppose is the answer to this the brain when you are younger is more malleable obviously you're kind of going through a lot of change so your brain is changing 
throughout childhood and the things that you learn during childhood are going to stay with you. That said, the brain changes throughout our lives due to experience right the way through to old age. The things that we learn and experience change structures at the level of the neuron that make it easier for us to um, kind of access that information or or go back to those behaviours. So there's no cutoff. You know, you reach 35 and and that's it that would be (laughs) that would be a bit awful wouldn't it um no we keep learning throughout our whole lives and the brain changes as as we learn how is the piano uh, learning going oh gosh i mean it's been it's not been as good in term two i've been a bit busy but i'm 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 still going i'm trying my best good on you there's one for emma to read gosh so this is from at headspace if you're always distracted by your phone neuroscience says the fix might be setting your display to grayscale oh interesting (laughs) this isn't one i've heard headspace i would say they are a, a mindfulness app and they're based in you know legitimate psychological research so you know in compare compared to other kind of mindfulness apps that are made just by people who happen to be interested in mindfulness this is definitely one that's kind of um you know legitimate based on legitimate research i haven't read any research about um turning your phone grayscale that's new to me but that's really interesting i will definitely read up on that after this you recommended that yeah yeah i have seen that before apparently the the second half of the tweet says it works because without color your phone immediately looks less less enticing to the brain apparently Mm, interesting Jury's out on that one. Okay, neuroscience. So this is at MDS nine seven four zero two. Neuroscience says kids' brains aren't fully mature till they reach their mid twenties. That that actually um, is true. Our brain <laughs> our brain continues developing until we're about uh, twenty four. And every time I remember this fact, I remember that I got married at twenty two, and and <laughs> and think I'm glad that I made such a good decision despite my brain not being finished. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah. Okay, here another one for Emma. Oh, gosh. Okay, another one. Oh, no, this is from Rashid underscore Coleman. Neuroscience says only 50% of your memories are accurate. Oh, I haven't read a specific statistic on how much of your memories are accurate, but I would say that memory in general is very fallible. Mm. Our memories are awful um, at accuracy because everything that you remember, firstly, I would say that at the process, the point of kind of I'm failing at the three sentences, Tom. I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> no, <it's fine. laughs> um, when you're processing information that you see around you, your attention pulls on certain things. So, you know, maybe the people around you or things that are of interest. It's not a video camera picking up everything perfectly. So, you know, sitting here with you guys as a bookcase, I'm not going to remember all of the books there. It's not a photograph, but I, you know, I might remember that, Emma, you're wearing a red jumper because I'm talking to you directly, you know, that memory might stay. So firstly, because attention is not a perfect image of what you've seen, you can't remember everything perfectly. And then when you get into how we use memory, there's some nice um, research around the way that we think about and use memories in our kind of anecdotes, the way that we retrieve them and kind of go over them. Memories can change based on new information. So 
our memories can be adapted based on maybe retelling of a story from someone else's perspective or kind of pulling it out and thinking about things or getting some new information in some shape or form. And uh, also kind of how we might tell those stories. There's some research that when you kind of try and tell a story in maybe like a funny way, that changes the way that you retain that information and the kind of emphasis that you put on different parts of what you experienced and therefore kind of adapts what you remember in a slightly different way. So yeah, to answer the question, I don't know if there's a specific percentage, but I would say that memories are super fallible. It's always the numbers, isn't it? They always whack a number on it. It must be the seduction of... Statistics. (laughs) All right, at underscore J Friday, neuroscience says people run on 95% subconscious autopilot. (laughs) Oof. Um... You can just say it's rubbish if you want no, to. No, no, I'm, I'm just trying to, trying to think it through. Um, again, a number that they've they've got from somewhere, I don't know. A lot of what we do is subconscious. Our brain runs on kind of assumptions about the world that help us to interact with the things around us. We make snap judgments really easily because we kind of have this um, these kind of schemas that that help us to understand how the world is, what people are likely to do in what situations, scripts about how a certain situation should happen, like at a restaurant that you'll be seated, that they'll come with the bill at the end, these sorts of things. So there are these kind of inbuilt structures to help us process things really, really quickly. Um, I'd also say that there's some nice research around the default mode network, which is a kind of neuroscientific area of study that kind of shows that a lot of neuroscience research used to kind of focus historically on specific areas that lit up during specific tasks. And then someone realised that when you look at the brain just, you know, chilling while they kind of lay there waiting for the study to happen, it was super lit up loads of things were going on and no one had really kind of studied that for you know quite you know a good 10 years or so into the field it was kind of overlooked so there's a lot going on when you're not doing tasks as well which uh, yeah it's quite interesting to kind of think about so yeah there's a few kind of things to tease out of that tweet yeah there's something in there all right one more for emma and then i'll wrap it up Okay, so this is at Brent Hodgson. Neuroscience says 16-year-olds are no worse at deliberating on a voting decision than 25-year-olds. Oh, interesting. I actually don't know the uh, answer to that. I would say that 16-year-olds are very capable of kind of making well-reasoned judgments. You know, that they're... You know, they spent a long time in education. They've considered... They've had to consider a lot of things about their future at that point, you know, um, yeah, I, I, depends I, on what the individual knows as yeah. well. Surely, there's so many things like that. Is that's pants? I think we <laughs> <Okay. laughs> hit the pants. I, I don't need to be a neuroscientist. <laughs> okay. <right>. That's so. <laughs> but my my political view would say I would say that 16 year olds should should be allowed to vote. Actually, um, I'm happy for people to disagree with me, but given that um, how much of their futures are decided by how the government operates i think they should 
they should have some input. That's my feeling. Yeah. Okay. It's, yeah. it's not pants from a perspective of we should be encouraging 16 year olds to vote. Mm. But it's the co-opting of neuroscience that makes. Yeah. Makes. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. OK. And the final one, because remember, I was searching for the phrase neuroscience says in tweets at Kaylee Miracle. Her, she says, I hate those neuroscience says and psychology says tweets because it's almost always nebulous without attribution and inaccurate. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Cite your sources, guys. If you're going to tweet, put a put a nice paper in there. <laughs> OK, and now it really is the end of the episode. A huge thanks to Dr. Louise Allen Walker, Programme Director of the MSc Psychology and Education. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that programme again very quickly? Yeah, absolutely. So it's um, a one-year master's programme if you do it full-time or usually over two years if you do it part-time. programme which is focused on introducing people who maybe haven't studied psychology before to how it can be applied to education and it covers all of the core areas of psychology um, and is accredited by the British Psychological uh, Society. And if you take it, you will never write a neuroscience says tweet again in your life. Okay, Dr. Lee Allen Walker, thank you very much. And as ever, we'll be back in two weeks' time. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. The special guest this episode was Dr. Louise Allen Walker, who I now owe several drinks, Programme Director of the MSc Psychology and Education here at Cardiff Met. Thanks to Louise for being such a good sport. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blanford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. You can find us on Twitter at TalkTeachingPod if you want to come and say hello. We'll be back in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching. Enjoy teaching.